0: Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Jesus' Bible Lessons by Don Reimer, recorded live at the 2023 Living Education Retreat. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Of the three sorts of knowledge proper to a child, the knowledge of God, of man, and of the universe, the knowledge of God ranks first in importance is indispensable in most happy-making. Talking today about Jesus and his Bible lessons. To do that, I want to go through the basics of what a Bible lesson is, and I do mean the basics. I'm going to focus specifically on the discussion part of a Bible lesson, and then we will see The master conduct a few. So why a Bible lesson? The knowledge of God is the principal knowledge. And no teaching of the Bible, which does not further that knowledge, is of religious value. What's in a Bible lesson? Therefore, the children read. Or if they are too young to read for themselves, the teacher reads to them. A passage of varying length, covering an incident or some definite teaching. If there are remarks to be made about local geography or local custom, the teacher makes them before the passage has been read, emphasizing briefly but reverently any spiritual or moral truth. The children narrate what has been read after the reading. They do this with curious accuracy and yet with some originality. Conveying the spiritual teaching with which the teacher has indicated, now this is no parrot exercise, but is the result of such an assimilation of the passage that it has become a part of the young scholar. So in this quote, we clearly see the Bible text is obviously part of a Bible lesson. And narration has to be part of the Bible lesson as well. If there are two things you do in every Bible lesson, it is these two. This is the core. This is the heart. This is the power. But what's this? That section right at the front before the Bible text, if there are remarks to be made about local geography or local custom, the teacher makes them before the passage has been read. It's called the introduction. Let's look at another text. The method of such lessons is very simple. Read aloud to the children a few verses covering, if possible, an episode. Read reverently... Carefully and with just expression. Then require the children to narrate what they have listened to as nearly as possible in the words of the Bible. It is curious how readily they catch the rhythm of the majestic and simple Bible English. Then talk the narrative over with them in light of research and criticism. Let the teaching, moral and spiritual, reach them. Without much personal application. I know of no better help in the teaching of young children than we get in Canon Patterson Smith's Bible for the Young. So again, we have the Bible text and we have the narration. But then what is this? What is this after? talk the narrative over with them in light of research, or the teaching of young children from Smith's Bible for the Young. What are we talking about there? This is the discussion. I want to point out there is an exhaustive matrix on Charlotte Mason poetry with all of the resources from the House of Education, um, so we have connection which is making the connection from the previous reading. Introduction, Bible text, narration, discussion, poem, and narration of a poem. The eighth one is actually comparison. If you're in the Gospels, you would compare like texts if there's a parallel passage. The green are Charlotte Mason's volumes where she talks about before that we've brought up. Introduction, Bible text, narration, discussion. Introduction is just, if there's geography, if there's maps, if there are things that help your, your child understand the passage before you get into it, something that they're not going to scratch their head when they hear the Bible passage, and that they're going to have a rabbit trail, and they can't get that thought out of their head, get that covered first. The custom, the geography, do it first. That's what that is. The rest of this talk is about the discussion, so I'm not going to do any more on this. Uh, I do encourage you to go to Charlotte Mason Poetry, look at Arts FAQ and FAQ 2 on Bible Lessons from January of 22 is where the first one was. But I want to go back. I want to look at this discussion a little bit more. Who is Smith? What is Bible for the young? And how does it apply in discussion? Well, Smith was a pastor and teacher and commentator, and Bible for the Young was a commentary. In fact, he had several, and they, they weren't all actually named Bible for the Young. I think that was the name for sort of a collection at the time. I want to talk a little bit about commentaries and discussion. Discussion is an aspect of a Bible lesson that is really not found elsewhere in other CM subjects. Miss Mason mentions commentaries most consistently as the primary discussion help to augment a lesson, usually after a lesson. I'm pulling from art a few more times. So we see that the discussion phase is the portion of the lesson during which insights from a commentary are read, heard, or paraphrased by a teacher. But even though the student reads the commentary herself, in the upper forms, there still needs to be some kind of response. The reason is that knowledge is not assimilated until it is reproduced. Even knowledge retrieved from a commentary. Student response to the commentary is not a narration, however, it is a discussion. That is why I would go so far as to call this phase of the lesson the commentary step, instead of the discussion step. On this uniqueness, we should ask why Mason always insists on using a commentary in conjunction with Bible lessons. This is an astonishing situation given that this is the exact opposite of her guidance with books by authors as Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Bible is the one source we have for the knowledge of God. It is the one authoritative guide we have on how to live our lives. It possesses a much higher degree of authority than Shakespeare or any other human author. And it is a book that the people of God have always studied and learned in community. This is why a commentary as a lockstep part if you have a discussion to help answer questions user It is rather a good plan occasionally to read aloud Mr Smith's lesson on the subject after the bible passage has been narrated notice she said occasionally but what of this quote the teacher opens the lesson by reading the passage from the bible for the young in which the subject is pictorially treated There will be probably some talk and discussion after this reading. Then the teacher will read the Bible passage in question, which the children will narrate, the commentary serving merely as a background for their thoughts. The narration is usually exceedingly interesting. The children do not miss a point and often add picturesque touches of their own. Before the close of the lesson, the teacher brings out, such new thoughts of God or new points of behavior, as the reading has afforded, emphasizing the moral or religious lesson to be learned rather by a reverent and sympathetic manner than by any attempt at personal application. So the question is, it, if you catch this, is it before or after? The previous quote was occasionally read it after. This quote, you're using Bible for the young in advance. But if you notice, it's background and it's pictorially treated. Here's my summary of this on this timing. For the commentary material that is more background information, like introduction material, maps and customs do it before. If the commentary is what helps you show that and describe that, use it then. But for the comments that are application-oriented, read it after the narration, and possibly even towards the end of the discussion, or possibly not at all. Come back to that more. Allow the child to ask her questions and or make his own connections first. First. Always put a primacy on their connections on their own first. That's the narration being a core part of this. And so, if at the end of this section on discussion in the FAQ, Art brings out a few points and I want to share them with you. I think the three keys to an effective discussion phase are variety, flexibility, and openness to the Holy Spirit. I believe that is why we don't see a single formula in the PNEU literature for how to conduct the discussion. Instead, we see elements such as, one, encouraging the children to ask questions. Of all the things, all the elements that are the most prized are your child's questions. Ellen Wicks writes, So we encourage them to ask questions, and with a little help, they often can answer them themselves. Two, asking questions yourself. You're modeling for them, are you not? Ellen a. Parrish, sometimes the teacher asks questions or points out some new aspect, but more often she learns a great deal from the children. Three, expressing your own ideas. Wicks also writes, some simple idea to inspire their daily life may end the lesson, the children often discovering it for themselves. This part of the lesson is called discussion by multiple House of Education students because it is the time when the teacher talks over the Bible narrative with the student and adds comments. Unfortunately, if this phase is not properly understood, it can lead to a grievous misapplication of Mason's methods, which sadly harms more than just Bible lessons. The root error is in supposing that narration is associated with a lower form of learning and is associating a higher form of teacher-directed learning. So Smith, in his commentaries... Has an introduction for every single one that is the same, and it has to do with tips for teaching and how to teach a Bible lesson. Here's a snapshot of of that. Make the lesson more interesting and more personal, and to hold the child's attention by questioning. Try to get his interest, try to make him talk. Make the lesson conversational. Don't preach. The hardest, thing, the hardest thing for me at the dinner table, when we do Bible, you know, dad, right, seminary, and different things, it's not, want to preach. Smith, Mason, my colleagues, my wife are telling me, don't. There's a time for preaching, but it's not now. Right. An ancient Roman orator once laid down for his pupils the threefold aim of the teacher to interest, to teach, to move. Can you see why Mason loved Smith? So, if I had to summarize discussion elements A, commentary, the spirit led community. B, conversation, spirit-led freedom. And those elements of conversation, one, the primary, if there's anything that you can do, encourage the children's questions, asking your own questions, and yes, expressing your own ideas without preaching. The own ideas, just model for them, this was so this was so neat that I saw this. This is what impacted me. But you'd really like to do that after they do. Relying primarily on narration. If discussion happens, that is spirit-led, great. If it doesn't, great. If discussion doesn't happen, great. It's okay to say great after that. Just remind yourself of the goal. The knowledge of God is the principal knowledge. The children narrate what has been read after the reading. They do this with curious accuracy and yet with some originality conveying the spiritual teaching which the teacher has indicated. Now this is no parrot exercise but is the result of such an assimilation of the passage that it has become a part of the young scholar. Assimilation that's the goal. Bible assimilation, the living word, and your child. Assimilate to take into the mind and thoroughly understand, to take in and utilize as nourishment, to absorb into the system, to absorb into the cultural tradition of a population or group, to make similar I would argue those are all biblical ways to view the Bible. All four are biblical ways to view the Bible. It it is the mind through which reaches our heart. The Lord gave us minds to understand the logic and reason of Scripture. It is meant for our nourishment personally, and it is shared by an entire community. The assimilation into a group, sometimes we see that in a negative sense, right? They've been assimilated. This is the good assimilation, okay? This is the living word, living and active in your child's heart. And to make similar, friends, discipleship is about being made into the image of Christ. That's that's the assimilation and the similitude we're after. How does this happen? This knowledge is not assimilated until it is reproduced. Children should tell back after a single reading or hearing. But whose ultimate job is it to interest, to teach, and to move, especially the Bible? Is it yours? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Also remind yourself of what the living word does itself, or himself. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You're wondering what your child is thinking? The Bible knows how to get there faster than you do and perfectly. So let the discussion be as spirit led, word led, and living as possible. Don't force it, don't try to close the deal. Let the living word and narration do their work over time. And one could argue that's what Jesus did. Ever notice what Miss Mason tells us to try? I'm not going to read this full quote. We've read the beginning of it multiple times already. Right here at the end. Now this is no paired exercise but is the result of such an assimilation of the passage that it has become a part of the young scholar. It is only by trying the method oneself on such an incident, for example, as the visit of Nicodemus or the talk of the woman of Samaria. That we realize the wonderful clearness with which each incident is brought out, the fullness of meaning with which every phrase is invested by such personal effort. What do you know about these passages? Let's try them both. and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's Walsham Howe, another commentator whom Mason turned to. His commenting on Nicodemus in How Can These Things Be, his last question. Nicodemus is still marveling. But the second question is far humbler than the first. He feels his ignorance and seeks to be enlightened. Yet it would have been better to have been able to say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. He is in fault in that he thinks he must understand in order to believe. If you're using a commentary, this is a comment on the side of a commentary. I do think it's beautiful to go back and see what commentaries Charlotte Mason used. I've used them a couple times. I do believe it is most important, actually, for you to use the commentary that marries with your faith and tradition the best for your kids. And current and relevant. That's just an aside. That's a personal thought. But this is not the end of Nicodemus' story in Scripture. If you read on in John 7, the context here is a couple years after that incident is likely when this happens. And it's six months, we know this more certain, before the crucifixion because it happened around the Feast of Booths, which is in the fall, and the Passover would have been the next year. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, Who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Meaning Jesus. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him, Jesus, before, And who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then at the crucifixion, or just after, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Those are the only three references to Nicodemus in Scripture. Think about his character arc, his spiritual journey. But now the woman of Samaria... So what we have, Bible map from Walsham Howe's commentary. We have the Holy Land at the time of Christ. At the bottom is Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where everybody had to come to the temple if you were a Jew three times a year. The north had Jews as well around Galilee. We know that. But this area in the middle is Samaria. They were considered the half-breeds because when... The Jews returned from the exile. Many of them who lived there did not stay purebred with other Jews, but intermarried with Gentiles. And so the Jews, the Pharisees, considered them outcasts, almost to where they didn't want anything to do with them. And now, the other thing I want to point out in this map is this is where we will be. Jacob's well sits right in the middle of our map, the inset. Sychar is the town. You will notice two fuzzy circles just to the left of Sychar, above and below. Those are two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. These were the two mountains when the Jews came over. They were told in the Pentateuch, gather on these two mountains for the blessings and the cursings. And Gerizim and Ebal also became mountains that over time proved to be places of worship from that point forward, before Jerusalem had the temple. A mountain is referred to in our passage. We don't know for sure whether it's Ebal or Gerizim, but in many ways, it does not matter. And this is actually the well that is to be spoken of. In 1935, it still exists. They know where it is. When, it's descri- when you describe a well that goes into the ground and it's next to a mountain, you know pretty f- firmly when you get to a certain well that this is probably the one. And so a cathedral has been erected around it. It used to just be in the middle of the field. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's the middle of the day. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. R.C. Sproul on the woman leaving her jar and coming to tell all the people in the town. When the woman heard these words, I am he, I am am the Messiah, she was filled with excitement. She had come to the well to fill her water pot so she could meet her daily needs. But she was so excited by her conversation with Jesus, she left her water pot and hurried away. We have no record that she ever filled it. She couldn't wait to get into town to go to the very city where she was a despised outcast to tell of her experience. Almost every commentator will say that the 6th hour counting from 6 a.m. meaning noon going to get water would have been very uncommon in the heat of the day. The women would have normally gone in the early hours of the morning to clean in the morning and the evening both times when it's not hot, but both for the key parts of the day that you need the water. But she was such an outcast, previous divorcee five times and now with somebody in an adulterous relationship, that she was despised. So I could argue on Nicodemus' timeline that he had Bible lessons over and over, Old Testament Bible lessons, to be a Pharisee. He was likely a couple decades even older than Jesus. If you trace some of the other interactions Jesus had with, with the Pharisees, they would have accusing him, are you not yet 30 years old? So most of the Pharisees would have probably been older than that. He witnessed Jesus' miracles. And he was trying to put those first two boxes together, and he couldn't. He was trying to do that. And he did go at night. And then the discussion in which Nicodemus brings one statement of bringing, I can't bring these two boxes together. Jesus says you must be born again, and he has two questions, one of which was sort of honest because he just took the physical response. He said, like, what do you mean born again? And then he just, he doesn't even know what to ask. He's just, he doesn't even understand any of the scriptural references Jesus is giving him when he's giving him some. He's giving him plenty that should have anchored him back in the Old Testament. That's why he said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, this is is hypothesis. This is a guess. I can't tell you this is scripture, that this is what happened, but I have a question mark, that he was meditating on that conversation, and it was seeding with him. It was Cutting in the thoughts and intents of his heart. and He's trying to bring those first two boxes together. And these other born again and Moses and look, just look, what? What do you, what do you mean? But he has enough courage in front of all of his brothers to say, are, are, are we right in accusing him by the law? tells me he was actually going back and reading the Old Testament again by our law. are we? Can we accuse this way? Because that's what it says in, in the Old Testament. And again, we don't know, but in those next six months before the crucifixion, is there more searching? Is there more looking? We don't know. But something's happening to the point in which he's able to, for fear of the Jews, for fear of his, his brother's Joseph of Arimathea and him are doing this. They're they're more willing to go to Pilate than they are to the Jews about Jesus' body, but they want the body. Remember, the other disciples are scattered. They're gone. Peter is nowhere to be found after the, the denying him three times. He wasn't at the foot of the cross that we know of. So yes, I would argue decades of Bible lessons with no true discussion or backwards discussion or legalistic discussion as a Pharisee student, but still the Bible and then three-year journey seated after a key discussion that he couldn't get out of his head. He couldn't stop thinking of it. There's a historical fiction book called The Robe, written many years ago, Lloyd Douglas, in which a Roman centurion that was supposedly the commander of the cohort at the cross witnessed the crucifixion, and the entire book is him. He can't get this man out of his head beautiful book. Jesus didn't force a decision or go through an in-depth Bible study. He did mention many Bible study comments, but his discussion over known or should have known parts of Scripture convicted Nicodemus over time. Just let the living word assimilate after his discussion. What of the one of Samaria? Samaria? What was her timeline of discussion and conviction? How did it compare to Nicodemus? We know for a fact she had multiple broken marriages. We know she knows current sexism and racism. And you could argue she was so comfortable with those isms that she was wondering what Jesus was doing not being comfortable with them she had gotten so hardened to these positions that but do you really think she liked them she knew her old testament she knew her old testament and they were promises that she held on to and held on to and were looking and looking and looking and where is this messiah where do i worship i want to know that You're starting to tell me you understand scripture. That's kind of what she was sort of figuring out. She got over the ism really quickly when she understood he knew something about scripture. And she was thirsty in three ways. She wanted the physical water. She really wanted to get this ism stuff gone and this social, uh, can you give me this water so I don't have to come here in this place of public scorn again? And again and again at a time when nobody else does because they hate me. And she wanted the living water. That was the third thirst. That was the one. She didn't understand it all. I'm not saying she connected all those dots at that moment. Remember what Hal's comment was, do you need to believe or do you have to understand all the things before you believe, right? So Jesus offers the water. She invokes Jacob. She invokes, "Wait a minute. Are you greater than?" our? Are it's interesting, right? She's still, she's still caught in the physical, the, the water. Do you, have a, do you, you don't have anything to draw this water with. But she brings up this Jacob's well, are you greater than are you greater than Jacob?" She's asking a spiritual question in the middle of that. Jesus puts her finger, his finger on her sin. Call your husband. That's the ultimate thirst I'm going to solve. And so she invokes, look at, look at the words she's using. She uses sir, by the way, a lot <laughs> from a military perspective. I appreciate that. She, she was, you know. but prophet, worship, Messiah. And the minute she mentions Messiah and Christ, you know, there's a lot of places where Jesus is sort of doing the, I'm not going to reveal myself to you yet and don't go tell everybody yet, but not here. This is early. This is early in his ministry, and he lets her run. He doesn't stop anything she does. I am. It's ego, a me. It's right there. It's I am. There's actually not a he. I am he. It's just, it's just the I am. Decades. Decades of the Bible of the Bible, of the Bible, and of thirst, and of thirst, and of thirst, and not being able to get out of her predicament. Five to ten minutes, maybe. Is that what that was? Where she's now the greatest evangelist Samaria has ever known? Because people, you can read the rest of that passage. People are coming, and they're coming to him not because of what she said. She's not starting a religion. She's pointing them to him, and, and they're like, we got it, we got him. She's like, yes, that's what I found too. Jesus never stopped answering honest questions. So some final discussion thoughts. Narration is where a child's assimilation of thoughts of God begins. The Lord may use regular discussion to augment and clarify, but without a life-changing moment. He may use one key discussion after many years of Bible to close the deal leading to a life-changing encounter with God. He can do that. Or he may cause them to remember a discussion with you Years down the road, or not, trust the work of the Spirit and the word in your child's narration over Scripture to not return void. Consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, that's praying for us right now while he's on the throne, for them. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words." Do everything you can to allow freedom for them to express their thoughts of God. Share your own application, if led to, after theirs, but not in a way that minimizes or corrects what they see. Answer as many questions that you, the commentaries or Bible footnotes, can. And be honest, as a child of God yourself needing intercession, that we don't always have every answer about God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Do not view discussion as the extra time in a Bible lesson for you to close the deal in convicting your child of anything. Let the passage live with them over time. See the Bible as the window for them to behold God the way he intended and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other for this comes from the lord who is the spirit who has given counsel to the lord who can question any of his words Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? When I asked Dawn, what's the best way you close any discussion or have any discussion over the Bible? She says, I remember a question that I learned from Nancy Kelly. What new thoughts do you have about God? Which is what Charlotte Mason said, thoughts of God over and over. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, not because you are. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And if you get blank stares in Bible lessons, it's okay. Keep putting the book of living ideas in front of them. And if you get apathy in your discussion, it's okay. Keep putting the banquet of God's word before him. But if your discussion is alive... I mean really alive. And the questions just keep on coming. And you've hit an open nerve by the Spirit. Leave the jar. Thank you. About the author, Don Reimer is a recent seminary graduate, prayerful about full-time ministry. Before that, he spent 24 years in the Air Force, teaching mechanical engineering at the Air Force Academy half of those years. But as he grew older, the Bible was growing bigger and warmer than his engineering textbooks. He is the husband of Don and father of five kids, ages 12 to 20. On the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, we share many original and vintage articles, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to miss a single one. We have a new email subscription system, so if you haven't signed up, you can do so at the show notes page. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts.